If you have Bibles, let's go ahead and make our way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. If you're using one of those um, black hardcover Bibles, they're now no longer under your seat or on your seat. There are actually little racks that hold Bibles in these chairs. So I got an amen from that. It's great. Uh, under some of the seats close to you, you'll find one there. If, uh, if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that with you when you leave today. That's our gift to you. Uh, we'd love for you to have that. In, uh, in Luke 17 and then into Luke 18, Jesus is teaching about the coming of God's kingdom. Uh, his death is fast approaching. He's preparing his disciples for this period of time between the two, his two comings, between his first coming, which has already happened, is already playing out, and his second coming. And during that gap, he's saying that his followers will experience trouble in this life. They'll experience persecution and suffering and oppression. So we should never be surprised when these things are part of our experience in this, in, in this life. And we should never be surprised when these things are part of the experience of others among God's people. Right? This is the only expectation that Jesus ever created about what life will entail for his followers. But that doesn't mean that it's not hard. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean that we won't be tempted to give up. And so Jesus tells this parable in the context of talking about his second coming and talking about the, the suffering that's going to happen, a parable about not losing heart. And so as we walk through this, I want you to consider a couple different vantage points. The first is how I think we most naturally tend to approach anything in life, and, and, and especially scripture, and think about how we personally, individually would respond to it. So one way to look at this is how do we endure suffering and oppression in our own lives? Um, how do we not lose heart in terms of our own personal faith in God? How do we keep trusting God to meet our needs and to be present working in our lives? But also, another vantage point on this, as the people of God who are called to display God's mercy in the world, how do you and I persevere and remain vigilant in the face of massive, widespread, systemic issues of injustice and suffering? like racial injustices, like sanctity of life issues, like the refugee crisis, these things we're talking about this month. How do we remain vigilant and persevere in that? I don't know about you and how this month kind of plays out for you in your own experience, but for me, the issues that we're tackling this month overwhelm me. They're really overwhelming. And the progression that I usually follow is something like this. I'll get really excited and fired up and passionate about a particular topic, and I'll run down that road for a while. And then I won't, after however many weeks or months of kind of running down that road, I won't see really that much visible progress in myself, uh, in others, in society around me. And so I'll become cynical. And then in my cynicism, I'll start to question God, and I'll start to question God's goodness. Like, does God really care about these things as I read he does in Scripture? And if so, why am I, seeing, why am I not seeing him show up and working in powerful ways? But questioning God's goodness, and maybe you can relate to this, questioning God's goodness gets really uncomfortable for me. I don't like how that feels. And so I find it far easier just to disconnect that part of my life from faith and trust in God, just to turn the volume down on that part of my life. And what happens then is I then drift away from what was maybe for a fleeting moment an actual pursuit of a lifestyle of, of mercy. Jesus anticipates this. Before we even get into the parable of it all, let's see this. Jesus anticipates this. He anticipates that kind of turning the volume down, that kind of losing heart in his disciples. 
and he anticipates it in me, and he anticipates it in you. And this parable about a persistent widow teaches us to pray and teaches us to not lose heart as we wait, as we work for the justice of God in the world. So I invite you now, listen with open ears to this book that we love, Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, compel each of us to simply take you at your word and guide us by your Holy Spirit. Do not let us get away from your teaching, from your word, without being caught up with awe and astonishment by its promises and by its powerful joy. And we pray this for our sake, Jesus. We also pray this for those whom we love, those who you have called us to love. And we pray it all in your name. Amen. So two characters uh, in this parable, there's a judge and a widow. A widow was an incredibly vulnerable person in this society. They're often overlooked, often uh, left to fend for herself. We don't know the particular kind of injustice that she is facing here. We're never told that. But it clearly is not something that this judge is interested in writing anytime soon. So he denies her request, and she persists, and he denies her request again, and she persists, and he denies again, over and over. But she never stops in all of that, pleading her cause. And so eventually the judge relents, and he gives her this justice that she's been longing for. And I think as we read this, this is something that every parent, grandparent, babysitter, relative, child care worker, anyone that's spent a substantial amount of time with children can really get a feel for why the judge relents. If you spend any kind of substantial time around kids, they are doggedly persistent. Doggedly persistent. Some more than others, to be sure, but they will wear you down asking for whatever it is that they want. And if only that were justice, right? If only that were something good and justice. Usually it's another snack, uh, another hour before they have to go to bed, something very inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Like the judge in this parable, as a, as a person who in that moment is in a position of authority, how many times does a child have to ask you the same question before you eventually relent and just give in to whatever they're asking you for? Right? There's an exhaustion, there's a weariness that sets in where eventually you, you just don't want to say no one more time. And so through this parable, through these two characters, Jesus is really teaching us about two things. He's teaching us about the justice of God and he's teaching us about the importance of prevailing upon God. The justice of God and the importance of prevailing upon God. So first, let's talk about the justice of God. In this parable, this judge has no compassion or mercy. 
He withholds his justice, and he does it many times. And he says, it says here in the text that he neither fears God nor respects people. And that's so emphasized in the text, not only does Jesus say it's setting it up, it also comes from the mouth of the judge himself. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man. Who talks like that? Who prefaces whatever they're going to say next by saying, basically, even though I'm a terrible person, I guess I'll do the right thing on this one. Right? The judge relents out of sheer exhaustion. It's not because he's a good judge. It's not because he's a righteous judge. It's because the widow wears him down. And all of that sets up a stark contrast between this judge and God. And what Jesus is teaching here is, what if the judge does have a heart of compassion? What if he is inclined to give justice? And he's teaching us there, how much more will God go to work on behalf of his suffering and oppressed people when they cry out to him? God will give justice to his people. That's what we learn from this text. He will vindicate his people. And throughout scripture, we read of God's heart for the oppressed, the marginalized, the enslaved. But as we read that throughout scripture, we don't just read about God's heart that's inclined toward those kinds of people. We also read of his powerful work on their behalf. Right? The entire story of Exodus is God powerfully bringing justice to his enslaved people in Egypt. And then in light of the justice that he brings to bear in their lives, he calls them to likewise be people who demonstrate justice toward others. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21 through 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. Now here's why this has to be our starting point. Because when we are going to be called to prevail upon God in prayer, what we are doing when we prevail upon God is responding to the character of God. We are prevailing upon God to act in accordance with the justice and the compassion that are already part of his nature and character. We're not asking God to do something that he is otherwise unwilling to do. We're not asking God to do something that he is disinclined to do, even when it might seem like that. Even when it might seem like his definition of acting speedily, as Jesus says here, is really different than yours and mine. It sure doesn't seem that God is working speedily when it comes to racial inequalities and racial issues in our nation. It doesn't seem like God is working speedily when we think about sanctity of life issues or hunger and homelessness or any of the things we're talking about this month. I'm sure it also did not seem speedy to the Hebrews in Egypt during those 400 years of slavery. The temptation for us if it doesn't meet kind of our definition of being speedy enough, the temptation for us is that we will start to think that God doesn't care. And we will start to think that because God doesn't care either, maybe I shouldn't care either, maybe I need not care, or because God doesn't care, maybe I need to care all on my own and take this into my own hands and run down this road myself because God won't. We have to guard our hearts and minds from thinking that God is no longer present and active and working in the midst of these massive issues of justice and mercy in our world. Right? He is present and active and working. And as slow or as speedily as any progress is made, complete justice and complete vindication for God's people, that is what is coming next in the history of God's redemption. 
right? We're not waiting for some kind of additional revelation from God before Jesus comes again, and when he comes, bringing the fullness of his kingdom, bringing swift justice to bear. Now, in addition to teaching us about the justice of God, Jesus also here is teaching us about the importance of prevailing upon God in prayer. And let me just say a a quick word about parables and their interpretation. We're in this series looking at several parables of Jesus, particularly this month, parables that highlight uh, the, the mercy that is evident in the kingdom of God, both God's mercy toward us and our mercy toward others. Quick word about parables and their interpretation. It is possible, and it happens often for us, to get lost, so lost, in a theological grid that we overlook what is clearly laid before us in Scripture. And the tribe of Christianity, which I'm from, uh, which I most resonate with, is really not good at this. This is a confession on behalf of people that are a lot like me. We're not good at this. Uh, About seven or eight years ago, the church I was part of in Kansas City, um, our pastor preached a text on this exact same Uh, a sermon on this exact same text, Luke 18, 1 through 8. And the next day, uh, we received this scathing email from someone who was there uh, talking about how terrible the sermon was, how it missed everything that was important about that text, uh, quoted the book of James saying that not many should presume to be teachers. Christians are really sweet to one another sometimes. They really, they go for the jugular. Um, This parable, in, in this particular man's view, was actually about God's elect people and how Israel used to be God's elect and now this widow was a picture of the Gentiles pleading their way and and becoming now part of the elect of God. Now, even if he had approached it with more grace and more tact, here's the problem with that. That this, this man, this view, so spiritualizes the parable... that it it gets so lost in making this parable fit into a theological grid that it overlooks the explicitly clear statement in the text. Is this a picture of Israel and the Gentiles? Maybe, but what does it say? Luke 18.1, he told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That is the point of this parable. That's the point of this parable. Luke, under the guidance of the Spirit of God, is interpreting it interpreting this for us. So really it is, for us, arrogance or foolishness to bypass that and to focus on something else. And from the tribes in which I run in Christianity, we tend to to condemn how other people and other tribes maybe do what we would call interpretive gymnastics to get away from some of the harder teachings of Scripture or the teachings that that don't line up with our, our current cultural opinions and cultural climate. I think that's right. I think we shouldn't do interpretive gymnastics to get away from those hard things. Likewise, we shouldn't be doing interpretive gymnastics to make certain things fit into an overly spiritualized way into our theological grid. So take the text as the text and do the hard work of figuring out what it means, but let's not overlook what's right here before our eyes. So Jesus is teaching us to prevail upon God and to prevail upon God as if he were exactly like this unrighteous judge. Of course he's not. He's not at all like this unrighteous judge. He is righteous. He is working for justice in the world. But Jesus says, nonetheless, wear God down with pleas for justice and vindication. Don't stop pleading that cause. In this delay, especially when things get hard and oppression comes, wear God down with your prayers. Now let's step outside of ourselves for just a moment on this. 
Think about how God's people throughout history, throughout all of time and all over the world in different locations than us, think about how they would hear these words from Jesus and respond by praying and crying out to God. The original hearers, the original audience, they're being called to endure a life of persecution, unjust suffering at the hands of Rome. So think about men and women who today face the same or at least very similar things. Christians in the Middle East or parts of Africa, parts of Asia who are persecuted for following Jesus. Will not God hear their cries for justice and give it to them? Think about refugees around our world, oppressed and and marginalized peoples. And for a moment, that's a huge and complex issue. For a moment, just narrow it down, narrow down the broadness of that to those refugees who are Christians who cry out to the God of heaven for vindication. Will not God hear them and give justice? Now think about racial minorities in the 21st century in the United States. And again, just for the sake of helping get our minds around this huge, complex issue, narrow it down to Christians of color in our nation. Right? Faithful followers of Jesus Christ who today at this very moment are sitting in churches worshiping the one true God and who are themselves crying out to God that they are experiencing injustice, not in general, not in some kind of theoretical way, but in the very neighborhoods and nation in which you and I live and work and play. Right? Will not God hear them and give justice? Cries against uh, racial injustice in our nation. That is not some fringe movement of radical, vindictive men and women. Okay? If that's your impression of this, then I would say stop getting your news from wherever you're getting your news from. And instead of that, start listening to Jesus-loving, Bible-saturated voices of people like Dr. Tony Evans in Dallas or Dr. Eric Mason in Philadelphia or many other faithful men of God who happen to have black skin or other color skin who are teaching about this topic. This summer at uh, our network's church planters, uh, uh, pastors gathering for, for our, our, the X29 network that we're part of, there was a very powerful and helpful panel discussion where four black pastors who have planted and are now pastoring churches in our network shared about how they personally have experienced and witnessed injustice in their own lives and in their own congregations in their own neighborhoods. And as they shared that, they also shared that there is something particularly painful and wounding about the lack of empathy and the lack of understanding that they experience, not from white Americans in general, but from fellow Christians who are white. As one of those fellow Christians who is white, right, like many of us in this room, when I hear a cry for justice from my brother or sister in Christ who has a different color of skin than I do, will my heart be for them or will it be against them? Will I be with them in their cries for justice or will I keep them at an arm's length, keep a distance? I implore you to ask that very question of yourself. Will you, will I, will we join our prayers with men and women like these who who just as we would long for other Christians to join with us in our pleas for deliverance and, and justice and vindication wherever we're experiencing that, will we join our prayers and our cries with them? Or will we be dismissive? And will we look for the, the holes and the shortcomings in the, in the arguments and try to find a loophole for why we shouldn't have to care about this? Right? God will vindicate his saints for the injustice 
that they suffer in this life. And so wherever there is validity to the experience of racial injustice by Christians of color in our nation, I think there is a lot of validity to that. God will hear. God will bring justice. Will we be on the side of the justice of God? That's the call to us, especially if we do not have a different color skin than white, right? That's, that's our call. Will we be on the side of the justice of God? Because if so, it means prevailing upon God to act with mercy and compassion and power and to tear down these dividing walls that persist in our country. Racial injustice, the need for racial reconciliation, massive, complex issue, right? It is easy to lose heart. And maybe that's where some of you find yourself today. It's easy to lose heart in this. But you know what's even easier? To never acquire a heart for this in the first place. To never acquire a heart for this in the first place. To never acquire a heart for justice and mercy, for racial reconciliation. Right? Perhaps because the scope is so overwhelming. Perhaps because you fear futility of your efforts or you fear failure or disappointment in that. Right? It is easier just to shut your life off to the suffering of others. And if that's you, then my prayer for you is that in seeing the compassionate and merciful and justice-loving heart of God, that you would have a heart for the same. That God would give you a heart that you might lose. If you don't have a heart that you're tempted to lose, may God give you a heart that you might lose. All right, let's start there. And then having that heart that does break for injustice in our world, my prayer is that we would be a people who never lose heart. Now the question is how? How? And the answer is by doing the very thing that Jesus is teaching us to do in this parable. By prevailing upon God in prayer. Prevailing upon God is how to avoid losing heart. Right? It is to be reminded, as we prevail upon God, is to be reminded of the merciful, compassionate character of God. And it is to lay our groanings before him that he might remember and that he might respond. And not because God has forgotten, but because in some mysterious way, it is often our prayers that rouse God to act in powerful ways that align with his nature and his character. In Exodus 2, the Hebrews cry out to God in their slavery, and it says four things. It says, God heard, and God remembered, and God saw, and God knew. And it roused him to accomplish the salvation event of the Old Testament, the liberation of his people from the oppressive yoke of Egypt. Now, will God act in such a powerful way in our day? Maybe. I hope. I mean, wouldn't that be a glorious thing for God to act in such a powerful way in our day? But regardless, as Jesus says at the end of this text, when he comes again, will he find faith on earth? As we prevail upon God in prayer, that action itself is to cling to God in faith. Will he find faith on the earth? Well, he will if we, his people, continue to prevail upon him. And I mentioned earlier how it's easier for me to just turn the volume down and to disengage from these things. But that is to disconnect a part of my life from trusting in God. Right? Prevailing upon God in the midst of injustice like this, even prevailing upon God with my doubt and my lament, God, where are you? God, do you really have a heart of justice and compassion? Are you really good? And why are you not acting in more powerful ways? Even prevailing upon God in that, that is faith. 
That is trust in God. It's far more trust in God than allowing the scope of this or the lack of visible progress to lead me to disengage. So church, God has definitively demonstrated his compassion. And we will come to this table and see it in visible form in just a minute. Right? The fact that you and I are not only invited but called but commanded by Jesus to prevail upon God, that's only possible because God has already poured out his compassion and his mercy upon us. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, he has dealt with the root of all injustice. He has dealt with sin. And so where, when you find, I say when, not if, when you find yourself questioning God's heart and questioning God's power to act, fix your eyes again on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because through it, God has broken down the dividing walls of hostility and he has made peace with all of us. He has made a way, not just for one particular subset or group of us, he has made a way for all of us to be reconciled to God that we might know and be known by and relate to the God who has made us for himself. So like this widow, may we prevail upon the mercy that has made a way for you and me. And may we continue to cry out to God for his justice to come May we not lose heart, but may Jesus find faith on earth when he comes again. Amen. Amen. Before I pray for us, let me just invite and call each of us to prayer about this this week. If Tuesday night doesn't work for your schedule, we're going to meet here Tuesday night and we're going to prevail upon God together, even specifically this week for racial injustice that exists in our world. If Tuesday night does not work for your schedule for whatever reason, totally understand that. Make time this week somewhere to pray. And not only to pray for the kind of routine things that you normally pray for, provision in your own life, care for your family, all of those are beautiful and right and good. It's not a matter of stopping those things. But pray specifically this week and prevail upon God to act with justice on behalf of those who need to experience it. Do that with your home group. Do that with people in your Bible study. Do that with others that you connect with over for whatever reason. And if this is completely new to you or if you find yourself struggling where to begin, then I just would commend Psalm 82 verses 3 and 40. Let that language even begin to shape your prayers for this. And as we pray and come to the table, I'm going to begin our prayer with those words from the psalmist Asaph. So pray, pray with me. God, give your justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. God, that is the prayer of our heart this morning, that you would go to work powerfully on behalf of those who are suffering from injustice, and that you would go to work powerfully, not in spite of us, but through us. We want to be people who work for your mercy because that is what has saved us. Your cross, your resurrection has, has poured out your mercy and compassion upon us, has made a way for us to prevail upon you. So we do prevail upon you and ask for you to work. And we will not relent until you come. So strengthen our pursuit of that. May we not lose heart. We don't want to lose heart, but we confess that we do. And now, Jesus, as we come to this table where we see 
that you have in your body and by your blood broken down the dividing walls of hostility. May we be renewed. May we be encouraged. May we see that you will accomplish this work that you have begun. And as we see our own need to repent and believe, give us hearts that trust in your compassion and your mercy toward us. And do that in our hearts as we come by your spirit, we pray. Amen.